this 41st chapter of Isaiah is um, it's really a, it's kind of this beautiful turning now uh, away from kind of these very severe, harsh condemnations that, uh, that Isaiah has in his first 39 chapters. And now uh, as we turn towards this, well, you know, we, the, the, the climax, the, the apex that, Psalm, that Isaiah 53 which speaks about uh, Christ's crucifixion. Um, we're going to be walking all the way to the crucifixion through the book of Isaiah. And in the 41st chapter, uh, we kind of begin all that. Um, let's uh, let's uh, take a moment for prayer, and then uh, we'll uh, read a couple of verses just to kind of prime ourselves for uh, what it is that's being said here. All right, let's, um, let's start with a, a prayer. O oh Lord God, Heavenly Father, it is in weakness and in sadness and in sorrow and in pain and in suffering that you actually bring forth your church. It's like a woman who is in child labor. It is in the pain that somehow also the joy is contained. And we pray that as Christians you would sustain us and keep us through these times of trial and tribulation that we might walk through our life with the pure joy of knowing that we have a gracious and loving God and Father who is all-powerful and able to save, but saving always through weakness. We pray, therefore, that as we study your word, that your word would enlighten us and that the comfort and consolation of Martin Luther would also be of great joy for us as well. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, um, let's, uh, let's read chapter uh, 41, and um, why don't we read 1 and 2 here to start with, okay? Are you ready, everybody together? Be silent before me, you islands. Let the nations renew their strength. Let them come forward and speak. Let us meet together at the place of judgment. Who has stirred up one from the east? calling him in righteousness to his service. His hands, he hands nations over to him and subdues kings before him. He turns them to dust with his sword, to wind-blown chaff with his bow. Okay. Um, now, those of you that might have the Concordia Study Bibles, you'll probably find out that the uh, Concordia Study Bibles uh, kind of direct you to this supposedly being fulfilled with Cyrus who uh, is the Persian who sets the Israelites free and brings them back from captivity. But Martin Luther takes a different perspective. Martin Luther believes that this is Abraham who is being called from the east and who in all his so-called weakness finds himself um, uh, remaining untouched, if you will, as he passes through these lands, as he goes to places where there are foreign kings who would ordinarily... Uh, destroy him, and he's being protected by God's, God's hand. But Abraham is this, if you will, this weak person, and yet God uh, protects him. Um, let's, um, let's go a little bit further here, and um, let's, uh, let's, let's pick this up at verse 14 and read uh, 14 and 16, okay, together. Do not be afraid, O worm Jacob, O little Israel. 
for I myself will help you, declares the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. See, I will make you into a threshing sledge, new and sharp, with many teeth. You will thresh the mountains and crush them and reduce the hills to chaff. You will winnow them. The wind will pick them up and a gale will blow them away. But you will rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. Okay. And so um, now there's kind of this, this, this idea of the gospel going out, the word of God going out into the world. And if you uh, recall, uh, the, the activity of evangelizing the world is described in the scriptures as threshing. Um, now, I think probably most of us have never seen a threshing machine uh, before, maybe in a museum. Uh, but uh, but uh, we all know what a threshing machine is, right? That it separates the grain from the, well, the wheat from the chaff, if you will. And uh, by the way in which something is beaten, they used to have these threshing sticks where they would literally beat uh, the grain out of, uh, out of the stock, that, um, that this is exactly what uh, the Word of God does when it goes out into the world, that, that those who are God's own, you know, like the story that we had this morning of the disciples going out and, and they go to a house and if there's peace that rests upon that house, they stay and they remain. And then if they don't, they actually enter into judgment. They shake off even the dust of their clothing as a judgment against those who have rejected. And so it's kind of like, hey, buddy, now is the hour of your salvation. Now. And they, th what he is driving at here is that this is what uh, guys like Martin Luther even are going to do as they preach and proclaim uh, the Word of God. Um, all right. Um, the, um, let's uh, let's uh, read once more. Um, let's take this from verse 27. Um, I was the first to tell Zion, look, here they are. I gave to Jerusalem a messenger of good tidings. I look, but there is no one, no one among them to give counsel, no one to give answer when I ask them. See, they are all false. Their deeds amount to nothing. Their images are but wind and confusion. Um, if you would, turn to the end of our handout. And there are questions for discussion. What I'd like to do today is uh, about uh, 10 minutes before our class would end, I would like for you to maybe take up that discussion among yourselves if we can get that far. Um, just to read them ahead of time. In what way can we say that Abraham's life is an example to us on how to live our lives? Why would Luther identify so much with Jan Hus, uh, John Hus, who uh, you will recall, was the Bohemian, the Prague, the rector of the University of Prague, who uh, started the Reformation, if you will, and who was burned at the stake. Why is it necessary for us as Christians to know that we truly are children of God? Why was Rome so furious over Luther's emphasis on the righteousness of faith alone? What makes us poor and needy people? Can you find in Luther an explanation for why God allows terrible things to come our way? That kind of touches upon our sermon today. 
Why are we weak in the face of religious superstition? It's just a just such an enlightening thing that Luther brings to this idea of religious superstition. And uh, we sh should probably also just say superstition, period, because um, probably what we were all looking at in the Oscars was pure superstition. Where does Martin Luther find his consolation from God? Okay, let's back up. Are you ready? Um, what I did here is... Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight on that first page. Um, my, my computer was very happy to uh, give us all those numbers, but when I skipped verses and went to 10, it wanted to say 9. It wanted to say 10 when I did 11 and so on. So I just put the verse that's being referred to in parentheses if there's no agreement between what my computer wanted to do and what uh, we were covering. It starts off, listen to me in silence, O coastlands, let the people renew their strength. A Luther, as I mentioned before, treats this as Abraham. Um, he uh, he uh, sees it as a, as a simple statement about history, that this is not allegorical, that it is not uh, something that, that somebody else is being represented or that, that this is general to everybody else. He's just using Abraham as an example. Uh, your study Bibles will, will make this appear as though this might be Cyrus. He says, who stirred up from the east. No one withstood him, he said, and he stood up in confessing the faith before all nations. Think of this. If he confessed God in the midst of the Babylonians and said that their God, her, was nothing, would he not have had enemies? He's driving at, here's Abraham in the land of Mesopotamia. He called him. He gives up nations before him. This story is told beautifully in Genesis 14. It tells about four kings pursuing five kings and taking Samsusim. Uh, this is a, uh, a tribe that was um, probably very closely, close there to where Sodom and Gomorrah were. And brother Lot captive. He tramples kings in the foot. This is because faith consoles the godly and terrifies the ungodly to such an extent that they think they are surrounded by enemies on all sides. Remember the story about the Midianites and how they come up and they're just like the sands of the seashore. And, you know, when we say, how could, how could we ever survive? How can the faith survive in this, in this ungodly world in which we're living? And we have to always remember that, that God is the one who actually can create fear in the hearts of those who are our enemies. And then in the case like the Midianites, there was all of a sudden this, this terror, and they ended up killing each other. Um, we don't know nowadays what's going to happen with, um, with Christianity in the world, but we do know this, that God is capable of being able to protect us in the midst of such an unbelieving world and that we should not be afraid of the world. The world should be afraid of us. You've got to stand firm. Um, if you, uh, you find that probably nowadays in the, uh, in the workforce, in the, in the place of business, I was talking to a young lady yesterday who, um, a former member of our congregation, moved to Chicago and she now works for the company that um, 
uh, Rust-Oleum, you know, that, that, that spray can stuff that they, apparently they do now cleaning products as well. And she works for them, and the people, they bought out this company with these cleaning products, and they're starting a new brand. But she said that uh, it's such an, an incredibly wonderful place to work because uh, the people that work there can bring their faith to work. They even have a chapel in their, biz in their headquarters. And they're expanding, and they need more space. She said, it's funny, they, they haven't even gone and taken the space of the chapel, you know how you sometimes need that because you get people who are stacked on top of each other? But you can express your faith. I said, well, that's kind of unusual, isn't it, today? That uh, we could. But maybe if Christians, maybe if we were all a little bit more bold about this, not, not in, the, in, the, in the sense that we're offensive, right? I mean, we don't, we don't want to be walking around uh, making everybody, you know, putting black ashes on people's foreheads when they're looking the other direction. Um, but I don't know if you, you saw Molly uh, Ziegler-Hemingway. Uh, she was on national TV. She's oftentimes on uh, fo like Fox News and such. She's one of the contributing ed editors to uh, The Federalist, and, um, and she's become one of the spokespeople, I guess you might say, in Washington for the pro-life movement. Um, she <laughs> on Good Friday, she went and put a great big black mark on her forehead and was on TV. She was the only person, somebody said, she's the only person that went to church on Ash Wednesday. But she made a statement. So I'm not, you know, I'm not a uh, put ashes on my forehead kind of guy and, you know, walking around stuff. But, you know, we have to think about that. How, how do we model our lives after Abraham? Are we able to claim our God in the midst of an ungodly world? Well, Luther says it's a good thing. Um, number three, this is kind of touches on what our sermon was talking about today. He passes on safely. That is, he brings back some of the spoils. That is, the God for me, he says, this weak God. The weak God. Who has performed and done this? Verse 4. Here the prophet again adduces an example. For God may appear weak for a time, but soon he looks like a different person. Even so, Christ seemed like a drop on the cross, but when he rose from the dead, the whole world was as nothing before him. So here, you know, we, we constantly are facing this great mystery that the Christian church is going to appear as though we are nothing, that we as Christians appear as though we're nothing. You know, let me think about it. I mean, the... Who... Did you ever wake up in the morning and say to yourself, if I were gone tomorrow, in what way would the world be any different? I mean... You know, it's one of those things where you just kind of have to go all the way down to the bottom of nothingness. And then you realize that what makes us something, that makes us somebody, is not us. It's God calling us. That, that our, our value and our worth in life is actually in his call. And it has more to do 
actually ultimately with heaven itself. You know, when we, when we get to heaven, I know you think we're going to be singing Lutheran hymns. It's true. Bach will be up right there, and um, all the praise songs are going to be down below in that other place. Now the, um, but in heaven, to sing the praises of God, we are going to be saying over and over again in our praises, I cannot believe that God has called me. I cannot believe that God would love me. I cannot believe God's grace and his mercy, that I was nothing but dirt. And God called me from eternity and gave me a name and laid out the very good works in which I was going to walk so that when I get to heaven, I can't even claim that my conversion was anything I did to say nothing of the fact that every single so-called good work that I've ever done in my life, God laid out before time and eternity. And we're going to get to heaven and the heavens are going to be filled with the praises of God for all of this. But you know what? We don't rob God of his glory. So therefore, God chooses, what does Paul say, what is weak and despised in the world, even the things that are not, in order to make foolish the things that are, so that no human being can be boastful in God's sight. Yeah. And so... It, Paul says, God chose was weak and despised the things that are not. It's okay to be a nobody. It's okay to be an unworthy person. It's okay to be a thief on a cross. In fact, it's so wonderful, especially if what we can do is set God's grace and mercy over and against ourselves. I've always said, Christian sanctification is kind of a strange thing. When you have the Apostle Paul, who probably, if we were to look at our, our sanctification, what we call sanctification, living a holy life, I, I don't think there's anybody who probably could have ranked off the charts as being a holier person from a human perspective than the Apostle Paul. I mean, this is the guy who is beaten and stoned. This is the guy who is left for dead. This is the guy who goes out into the wilderness and spends three years in the wilderness. This is the guy who is practically blinded by this vision of Christ. This is the guy who his entire life, she's shipwrecked and uh, uh, just everything for the faith. He does everything, gives up everything. And yet Paul says, he says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Christian sanctification, what makes us really, really, really good Christians is that we actually are given the gift of the Holy Spirit to recognize how unworthy we are. So that as we go down, down, down in our unworthiness, our recognition of God's grace goes up, up, up. And that incredible chasm between God's mercy and who we are, what, how undeserving we are, is where it is that the true praise of God is to be found and where, I guess you might say, our worth is to be found if we were to talk about our, our works and our deeds. So that what's so odd is that the holier that we become, the more humble we become. Or put it the other way, the more humble we become, the more holy we become. And this is, this is what this, this, this idea of weakness means, therefore, that 
when, what does Paul say? When I am weak, that's when I'm... Oh, wow. I, uh, when I'm weak, that's when I'm strong. Yeah. When I realize it's not me, that's when I realize that it's all God. When I realize I don't deserve it, I realize that it's all grace. And this is why Luther says that our God is the so-called weak God because he himself even comes to us in weakness. But that weakness is the power and the strength of God. And we're going to look a little bit more at, at how it is that God, I mean, this, this great mystery of why, why are terrible things happening in this world and even terrible things happening to us. Um, number five, the nations have seen and are afraid. He said, just as we observe in the Pope today, Luther just can't resist taking a stab at the old Pope. The more he sees the miraculous effects of the gospel, the more he schemes and plots. When they see us stand fast, they are afraid. You see this more clearly in our time under the papacy, which darkened the new gospel under John Huss and is today opposing the gospel with endless schemes and the most powerful alliances. Now, what is he, what is he driving at? Um, when uh, I was commenting on, on the three ladies that were over here at the table, I called them uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, but I forgot that there were four in the, in the fiery furnace. So you're, you're showing up here. Um, Sarah must have meant something symbolic. Um, but what, what, it, what happens? What, how does the world turn when, you, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stand firm in their faith and they refuse to bow down to this idol that's set up by the Babylonian king? They're thrown into the fiery furnace and they're preserved in the fiery furnace. Then they, that's when the king recognizes whose God is God. When we as Christians refuse to let the world make us afraid, we make the world afraid. Our steadfastness they can't account for because every person has a price that they're willing to pay in order to be able to save their own life. If we can stand there and say, look, take they our life, good, fame, child, and wife, let these all be gone, they yet have nothing won, the kingdom ours remaineth. Thank you, Martin Luther. The world gets afraid, and that's exactly what we want. We want them to be afraid, not us. There's a, there's a, a boldness that we should have. All right, each one helps his neighbor, he says. He says, all the kings join in the conspiracy as we see today. Take courage. He says, stand fast. They said, stand fast, do not give in to Luther. Wait another year. You will see this sect thoroughly destroyed. Yeah, they, they, were, um, they were plotting to kill Luther. Did they ever do it? No. Luther died a natural death. And that was, that was kind of a big deal. Um, I've, I've mentioned before that there were knights that came to Luther, a guy named Sickingen, and he came to Luther and he had 300 knights and he had a fortress. 
And he said to Luther, come on with us, we'll protect you. Luther said, sorry. And he went back to Wittenberg. And there he figured, if, I, if I'm going to die, I'm going to die. But I have to preach the word. And it was actually in the way in which he preached the word that preserved his life. Because if he had run and hidden, he would have died. Um, and for Luther, he was not to be protected by military force. If you uh, have uh, ever uh, heard of a guy named Ulrich Swingli, uh, Swingli was this reformer that was uh, there in Switzerland. Uh, you know, they, they had, Switzerland had these cantons, these various divisions, these kind of states within Switzerland. And Swingley had a huge influence, a, a Reformation influence there. But uh, Swingley really died on the battlefield. He thought that by taking up the sword that he would be defending Christendom. And that's what Luther said is what we shouldn't do. In fact, uh, it's a question as to whether or not there would not have been uh, more that would have been accomplished because he even told the princess, he said, don't, don't go to war here uh, because if you go to war, you're going to end up, you don't advance the kingdom of God by means of warfare. Well, there had been this, uh, this one duke had, um, uh, in Wolfenbüttel, had, um, I guess you might say he was, he was uh, becoming an instrument of the papacy and the instrument of the imperial forces. He was smack dab kind of in the middle of Lutheran lands, but like they used to do, they, you know, they would bribe uh, this individual with all kinds of privileges if he, would, uh, if he would support their cause and such. And so uh, the Saxon elector uh, came with the army and they basically conquered this part of this, uh, this dukedom of, uh, of Wolfenbüttel. And that guy, of course, then fled. And when that happened, that's when it is that the imperial forces gathered together under Charles V. And then they had to form the Small Caldic League. And then the imperial forces came and attacked the Small Caldic League. And they lost. The Lutherans lost. They lost their lands. They lost their freedom. They lost everything. Luther had said to them, don't do it. If they're going to come and take us, let them come and take us. Because what? The word is the ultimate weapon of the true Christian church. Our courage, our steadfastness, that's what matters. So we, are, we don't accomplish our goals by that worldly power, that strength, you know, that's, that's the, the strength of the world. That's not our instrument. Our instrument is the word alone. And that applies also with our family, doesn't it? And we... Um, I hope we're not telling our kids that they have to come to church because we told them they have to come to church. Uh, sometimes you have to tell them you're going to church no matter what. Now get out of that bed. But we have to not ever let the motivation be merely this external, this is what we do. You have to let the word change their hearts. Let the word speak to their hearts. And that's the only thing that's going to keep them in the faith. Okay. Um, number seven, he fastens it with nails 
Luther says, all the philosophers and papists gather together in order to nail down the idol of the Pope. They have their hammers with which they attempt to set it up and erect it. So we see today in the opponents of the gospel, it is to be fastened with nails. That is, it has to stand by the authority of others, of the emperor and the princes. Our doctrine, however, does not need their authority, but stands on its own merits. Um, every, every false religion in the world has to have its nails. In other words, without having God's authority, it has to create the appearance of authority. So all you have to do is drive down a hundred and uh, uh, 16th Street, and as you draw near unto the hospital down there, you'll see a great big white building that shines with glory. And if you think that one's glorious, just go out to some of the places like Washington, D.C., or San Diego, or Salt Lake City, and you'll see that Mormonism has erected its monuments, right? So that what? I guess so that the Book of Mormon can somehow become the authoritative book supreme and superior to the scriptures themselves, and that Joseph Smith can actually become a person of greater authority than even Jesus. I mean, Joseph Smith was a person who said what? That uh, when Jesus died, he only had a couple of apostles that stayed faithful, but oh, Brigham Young said this, but when Joseph Smith died, look at all these people that were faithful to him. He was a cult leader. He had a cult. So does his authority established by numbers? And Luther would say, what? Uh, any church body, if you want to call it the big box that's over here, uh, don't you see, folks, that because everybody's going there that they must be teaching the truth? Haven't you seen the fact that because there are Roman Catholic churches all throughout the world, that they're far more populous in number than we are, that that must mean that they're true. Or how about if you go to the university and the professors at the university are all explaining to you how it is that uh, man did evolve from apes or that man did evolve from lower life forms, that therefore their word must be true because they're all so smart and they have PhDs. Nothing against those of you who have PhDs. But, but the idea being, you nail your authority by means of something other than, the word Luther says, we have the Word of God. And that should be good enough for you and for me, too. The Scriptures. Uh, Jim Grady is going to preach on Wednesday. So I, I want everybody in the middle of a sermon to stand up and start shouting, hey, 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 and just see what he does. It's just, <laughs> just, just, you know, I'll give you the clue. I'll, I'll go like this from behind, and everybody stands up. Uh, we, we like to, to make these guys feel really, really, really uh, insecure, right? So that in weakness, everything happens. But All right, number eight, uh, but you, Israel... Oh, my goodness sakes. When that removed. Now follows, he says, a torrent of consolations. It is as if he were saying, because I appear to be a weak God, and yet they can do me no harm, they persecute you, my servants. Let each one then know that in 
his calling. He is a servant of Christ. Let not a wavering conscience cause doubts whether he is a servant of God. Therefore, he must above all determine that he can say with a firm confident conscience that he is a servant of God, although he is a weak sinner. In this glory, we must firmly boast and exalt, as Paul boasts in his epistles, so that he is judged a fool even by very many very wise men. This boasting is as necessary for each one as eternal life. The offspring of Abraham, my friend, these, this is from the text, these are the loftiest and most agreeable consolations as the terrors induced by Satan are the bitterest. God calls Abraham by the most attractive name. God promises him that all of us who walk in the footsteps of Abraham's faith are his offspring and God's friends. To hear Christ say, friend, elect servant, should make a person leap for joy. Yeah, yeah remember how, how Paul will say that the true sons of Abraham are those who have faith in this Christ. And what we are clinging to is what? That we're clinging to a righteousness that is not our own. And the way that the, that the devil gains his toehold in our lives is by taking the things that we have done against God, whether it be in thought, word, or deed, whether it be in unbelief or in actions that violate God's commandments, and he drives home our imperfections into our conscience. And what's so great about this is that we can say, yeah, everything that you say is true. But I have the blood of Christ. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses me from all sins. I am... Um, I've always said uh, in our premarital counseling classes, one of the great things about being a Christian is that uh, there isn't anything that our spouse can say about us that isn't true. And it's, a, it's a really an interesting way to argue. You know, if your spouse says to you, uh, you know, uh, you've been lazy, you haven't done any of it. My, my wife never says that, but... But you've been lazy, you haven't done any, you haven't done what you're supposed to be doing, you're you've been insensitive to my needs. You have never had that problem, Bob, have you? No. In insensitive, you could just sit there and go, yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah, yeah there isn't anything you can say about me that's not true. You're right. I'm a chief of sinners. That's me. Then you go, oh, what do you do? I mean, if that's all true, what do you do? And you say, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses me from all sin. When I go to that Lord's table, you're equal to me. And when we walk away from that table, we're both forgiven. And that's exactly how it is that all, it always works. We are people who have freedom through our forgiveness. And this is what binds us together and makes us one. All right. Well, fear not. Number nine. Now follows the comfort. Cling to me. Do not give in to evil. Though you are a sinner, I will protect you. Just don't give in, though Satan comes at you with his onslaught. He says, Satan assails us in a twofold manner, by force and by perseverance. Whom he cannot strike down by force, he torments by continuous pressure and perseverance. For this reason, the word must be preached constantly 
because of the persistence and tricks of Satan, who is always after us and always walks about alertly. My right hand, my righteousness has a right hand and has strength enough to help you. Satan, however, attempts to seduce us by means of our own righteousness, and by this deceit he safely hides himself. That is, he tries to make us think that we can protect ourselves by look at how good I am and look at how bad she is or he is. Look at how it is that you are a nice guy, Ned, and you're married to a person who's sometimes she's nice too. Um, and you say, well, I'm, I'm right, and she's not. And then you say, well, what does that mean? Satan is seducing us by means of our own righteousness, trying to be able to make us think that if we maybe compare ourselves to other people and we're not that bad, and he deceives us. We're all equally condemned, aren't we? Okay, um, if you go down a little bit further, um, he calls in, in, in uh, verse 14, Fear not, you worm, Jacob. Paul says, um, read the Acts of the Apostles. Luther says, there you will see how the apostles thresh away. All righteousness and law is nothing. There the apostles strike down the proudest piety and righteousness with one word. Why do you make trial of God by putting a yoke on the necks of the disciples? If faith alone justifies, then all external righteousness avails nothing. This is threshing. Boy, when we take away that pride that comes with how good we are and how bad everybody else is, that's where it is that we are in dangerous territory. But that's where it is that we rob the world of its righteousness, by its claims to righteousness. And boy, does that make people upset. I'll tell you a story someday about, about my own experience where I got thrashed. Um, it, that's different than getting thrashed. I got thrashed a couple times too by my dad. But threshing is a little different from that. Um, now, there, there's a little something here that I wanted to, to point out. Um, the, um, this, this idea of, if you, if you look here, um, um, it had to do with, with that, that question that we have here. Um, can you find in Luther an explanation for why God allows terrible things to come our way? Um, the, um, well, let's take verse 18. He says, I will make the wilderness a pool of water where he locates nothing but the most hopeless and trackless desert. There shall be rains and rivers. Likewise, when our situation is utterly desperate, we must not despair because the greater the trial, the greater a blessing will follow. That seems hard to us when we're in the midst of our trials, doesn't it? That the greater the trial, the greater the blessing that will follow. That's a little bit of a comfort to us when we are 
truly struggling through a situation in our life where it doesn't seem as though there's any resolution. But that will be. That's God's promise. All right, well, I'm going to let you go to talking among yourselves. And, um, and go ahead and just take these questions a step at a time. If you don't know anybody at your table, introduce yourself, please. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna kind of wrap wrap things up here, and it gives me a little time to be able to um, to see a couple of things that I I wanted to finish uh, round this off with. If you look at um, it's number 15, but verse 20. He says that men may see and know. Luther writes, For that reason God sends a variety of trials, heresies, and the cross in order to train his own and mortify them in their own righteousness and presumption. The ungodly, self-righteous cry, We have done it with vigils, mass, fasts, etc. I shall be saved. Man cannot escape this situation. Indeed, this poison of presumption cannot be purged away by human effort. For that reason, there is need of Satan, trials, heretics, and the cross. This is unheard of in theological discourse by almost anybody. It's uh, that Luther would actually say that God accomplishes his means of saving us through the very things that could destroy us. Um, a good football coach, though, knows that you beat the tar out of your players so that they can beat the tar out of others, right? Isn't, isn't that the way that it works? Um, he goes on to say, away with the Anabaptists who accuse us of neglecting our mortification. You know, those Anabaptists have become like the Mennonites and the Amish and such in our own modern day. See, they put away all these things and they wear these you know, simple clothes and they don't shave their beards and they do all these things that just kind of beat and destroy their flesh so that they can mortify themselves. They say, no, who accuse us of neglecting our mortification while they themselves begin their righteousness by means of their own mortification. They actually see them as ways of being able to merit God's grace. He says, we are justified through faith in Jesus Christ because he mortifies his own in various ways to the point of despair. And then he lifts us up again so that by experience we are compelled to say, I did not do this, though I expended all my strength, but the hand of the Lord did it. So God drives you. I say, it's, I say to my confirmation classes, it's like taking somebody to the Atlantic Ocean and saying, swim to the other side. And you say, well, I've, I've gotten about a half a mile and I'm really exhausted. Maybe I can't do it. And you go, ah, that's exactly where we wanted you to be because we want you to realize that it is God who takes you to the other side of that Atlantic Ocean. So when we try to be able to do it ourselves, when he sends trials and tribulations, we find ourselves to be weak and we can't do it and can't do it and can't do it, he turns around and says, yeah, now that's the point, isn't it? All right, now there, in number, verse 24 and number 18, behold, you are nothing. Here's a tough one. He wishes to indicate that the merits as well as the rewards and labors are nothing. 
He says, an abomination is he who chooses you. That's the, taken from Isaiah. So we see that the Pope is held in higher regard in the popular superstition in, in pop, than all the kings. All the Holy Fathers were affected. Augustine was somewhat overcome by superstition. Gregory was leprous, as it were, with superstition. Jerome was befouled by it, and so am I. All of us are unable to oppose it. Only the Holy Spirit can suppress it. If you want to walk into a classic piece of superstition, go see St. Peter's in Rome and walk into the Sistine Chapel, and you'll say to yourself, this has got to be where holiness is to be found. And Luther says that, that glory is something that is so overwhelming that, that you just find it, it's just like gravity that's sucking you in. And he says we can't, we can't oppose it. Now I think, I was talking with somebody about this this morning, I think that nowadays it's almost as though the secular world has taken over that glory. You, you look at the, at the uh, Oscars, you look at the, the whole Hollywood scene, and it's just these people are living in this insulated capsule, and there are, we've been watching this, um, this stuff on O.J. Simpson, you know. The guy is this, this charismatic guy who walks in, girls are just falling over left and right in order to be able to just be near him, to people to touch him, be around him. He can kill his own wife. He can murder his own wife. And he's still a person who's got the glory and the glory and the glory. And you say, what is this? And yet, that glory can be in secular things as well as in religious things. And Luther says, we, we are drawn in, we are sucked in, and even he would be facing it. But he goes on to say, all of us are unable to oppose it. Only the Holy Spirit can suppress it. And this superstition is the head of Medusa, which by a glance turns everything into stone. No one can escape it because it is so extremely fascinating. And then whatever else that, that follows. So for Martin Luther, the consolation that God in his infinite wisdom, what does Paul say? That the foolishness of the, cr that the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. God chose that which is ha, has no worldly glory to it. And he did it so that now when we embrace that cross and say that's where my salvation is to be found, that's where my hope of the resurrection is to be found, and we can say we didn't get it through worldly glory. We got it through Christ and Christ alone in that humility. And that's our comfort of knowing as Christians that we are indeed God's own children. So, Anyway, okay. Yeah, well, uh, let's close with a prayer. Dear Lord and Savior, we pray that as Christians we may find the weak God so that we might become strong. Let your weakness become our strength. Let your righteousness belong to us. Let all these tribulations and trials and losses and fears that we have had be turned into something that can be strong and be powerful because we turn our hope and our dependence totally upon you and your word. Grant unto us as your church the steadfastness and the courage to be able to speak you into the hearts and minds of the world in which we live. 
Let us not be upset by the idea that we are lambs among wolves, but rather give to us the courage of knowing that behind our words is your word, and behind the truth that we have is the mystery of the invisible God contained in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Grant us, O Lord, our peace and our strength in your weakness. In Jesus' name, amen.